And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me today to Psalm chapter 21. Psalm chapter 21. I always look forward to uh, summer in the Psalms. This is a tradition we began a couple years back where we will spend uh, 10 Sundays, 10 Lord's Days, studying one Psalm each Lord's Day. The Psalms have had a tremendous impact in the life of the church, haven't they? I'm sure that you could testify that they've had an impact in your own life, in your own time with the Lord each morning, devotions you've heard before, songs that you have sung are infused with psalms, and there are more funerals than I can count that I have attended, where it seems like in a time of greatest need for comfort, people turn to the book of Psalms. And Psalms teach us how to give godly expression to our emotions, a biblical way of praying and praising God. The Psalms teach us of the importance of justice and ultimately that God is the one true and righteous judge and he will establish his kingdom of righteousness. So the Psalms to me are always timely and I've tried to make it an endeavor for us through the midst of our calendar year as we are preaching through and studying God's word together to have time each year diving into the storehouse of treasure that we can find in the Psalms. I also like completion, and so I've often joked that this is a a job stabilizer, if you will, for a pastor that wants to get to 150. This will take 15 years if we do it at this pace, and by God's grace, I hope to be here preaching to you from the book of Psalms. Throughout these summers, uh, I've been endeavoring to also preach Christ from the Psalms. And if you haven't been here the last two summers, I just want to say a brief word about the, um, the way that that is okay for us to do, that we can look to find Christ even in the Old Testament. And that is because Jesus himself, after his resurrection, uh, came to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, And he was speaking to them. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus himself understood that the Psalms in some way were about him. Now, if you've been in the Bible Fellowship where we've talked about know how you got your Bible, you might recognize the Tanakh here, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. That was the way the Jewish people understood their Old Testament, the law, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, including the Psalms. And so when Jesus said, the law and the prophets and the Psalms spoke of me, that was a shorthand way of saying The Old Testament is about me. It spoke of me. And he understood himself being spoken of even in the Psalms. Another important thing to note in the book of Psalms is that these are editorially combined. And Psalms 1 and 2 stand, as some people have called it, as gatekeepers of the Psalms. That we should understand truly all of the Psalms in light of Psalm 1 and 2. So as you study and go home today, this Lord's Day, maybe you would spend a a few moments reading and meditating on Psalm 1 and the righteous man, the only righteous man that would ever come would be Christ, and Psalm 2, God's anointed king. And some of that, especially Psalm 2, will 
be a part of how we look at and see and understand Psalm 21 today. So although we will be interpreting the Psalms to some extent in their original context, we must also see them in light of their larger unfolding context in all of Scripture. And the New Testament authors will often help us see and interpret the Psalms Christologically, that is to say, as about Christ. So for these reasons, I think a summer in the Psalms will actually be a summer for us to treasure and cherish Christ together. And one other important word of introduction on this series, um, just a a preference here in translation. As some of you know, the last two years, I've been preaching the Summer in the Psalms from the English Standard Version, the ESV. And that's simply a a preference in uh, the poetry and the way I think it's preserved a little more poetically than the Christian Standard Bible. And just so a quick word on that, we actually do recommend uh, that you take time and, and get to know at least those two English translations of God's Word. We regularly use the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and we find it to be a very good translation. We actually have some study Bibles uh, in the CSB in the Elder's Book Nook, if you would like one of those. But we also recommend the English Standard Version as well, and we find it very useful and helpful. And just as the primary preaching pastor from time to time, if there are certain books that I prefer in the ESV, then that's what you'll get. So it won't hurt you uh, to go and find an English Standard Version Bible, because that will help you if you've never been a student of Hebrew or Greek to see how good and godly translators have seen certain nuance and shades of meaning in Scripture. And you can lay them side by side and often learn even more by studying them together. But for this summer, uh, we will be in the ESV. So one other thing, as we stand in a moment, I would like to ask for the privilege of reading Psalm 20 and Psalm 21, which combined will be far less verses than the Olivet Discourse was. So, uh, But a very important thing to do, as I hope you'll see in just a moment. So will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We'll be preaching and studying Psalm 21, but I'd like to read Psalm 20 as it relates directly to Psalm 21. This is God's Word from Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Psalm 21. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. 
You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. And would you please be seated? It was way back on August 22nd of 2021 when we studied Psalm chapter 20 together. And the title of that message was, Lord, Save the King. By faith, David wrote Psalm chapter 20 with the intention that the people of God would collectively pray for God's anointed king as he represented them in battle. David knew that the success of the people was bound up in the success of the king. He also knew that the success of the king in battle would result in the exaltation of the name of the Lord. And if in Psalm chapter 20, the king is praying for victory and the people are praying for the king's victory in battle, it becomes evident in Psalm 21 that the Lord answered the king's prayers. The Lord saved the king. Did you see that in verse 1? You see this? He says, in your salvation, how greatly the king exults. In fact, I want you to see a few ways that these psalms are connected in their language and why I've read them together. For example, Psalm chapter 20, verse 4, asked God to give David the desire of his heart. Give the king the desire of his heart. And Psalm 21, verse 2, says, you have given him his heart's desire. A direct answer to the prayer of Psalm 20, verse 4. Psalm chapter 20, verse 5 says, May the Lord grant all your requests. Last year we said, what kind of king would you want to pray that for? Only the king of kings whose requests would always be right and true and just. Psalm 21 and verse 2 says, You have given him his heart's desire and not withheld the requests of his lips. Everything he asked for, you granted. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots. And some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the 21st Psalm declares the king trusts in the Lord, and therefore he will not be shaken. Verse 7. So it's obvious that this Psalm, Psalm 21, this Psalm of thankfulness, 
for, is to God for granting the king victory in the battle that Psalm 20 was speaking of. And in the Old Testament context, we think of that consideration first today. Remember, we want to remember these originally and how they were understood. This psalm was likely a psalm that the congregation said or sang together. That's how most commentators understand the voicing of this. And we spoke about this last year, if you'll remember, when we talked about Psalm 20 as well. The people are often speaking of the Lord, speaking, excuse me, to the Lord and referring to the king in the third person. Lord, will you grant him his heart's desire? Will you answer his prayer? And so there are times when in the voicing of the psalm that the congregation is praying for the king, if you will. They had done so in Psalm 20. And if you look at verse 13 of Psalm 21, you see this plural language of we will sing and praise. We will exult. So there is some at least corporate aspect of this worship in Psalm as a result of the victory that God had granted this king in battle. So the breakdown of the Psalm goes something like this. In the first six verses, the people are giving thanks to God for granting the king victory, the victory for which they had just prayed or prayed previously. I don't want to spend uh, too much time on the theme of thanksgiving because I'm going to actually hit on that by way of application in a moment. Uh, But as one commentator put it, he that offers prayer on one day will often have a matter for praise another day. Do you see that in the correlation between Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 being placed side by side in the Psalter? He that offers a prayer one day will often have a reason for praise another day. So I have a question. Is your prayer appropriately balanced with thanksgiving? Is our prayer often balanced by thankfulness for what God has done? And we'll talk about that more at the end of the message. But then moving from verses 1 through 6 on to verse 7 to the end, the 7 to the end of the chapter sets a tone of confidence in God for further success for the king as he will go on to root out all of his enemies. So the people acknowledge first how God has blessed the king, and then they express secondly their confidence in God for further success. Now, that is the extent to which I'm going to consider this psalm primarily in its Old Testament context. We don't know the exact battle that could have been used in a number of battles. Any time an Israelite king was going to battle and maybe came back victoriously, maybe these were the psalms that they prayed and sung respectively. But the truth of the matter is, we determined last year when we studied Psalm 20, that the application was ultimately about Christ in his trouble. And so if Psalm 20 was about Christ in his trouble, then Psalm 21 is ultimately about Christ in his victory. I was so glad we sang victory in Jesus this morning. By the way, that is my favorite hymn. So thank you uh, to Camilla and Claire for those that have put that together. Um, So we think of this psalm and we meditate on it deeply You really can't come to any other conclusion than that this is ultimately about Jesus. Here's why. The language in this psalm outruns the pace that any of the Old Testament kings could have kept up with. 
Does that make sense? The, the language of the psalm outruns the pace any of the Old Testament kings could have kept up with. Think with me for a moment about the troubled history of Israel's kings. How few of them could anything like this psalm have even been applied to? So very few. How many of Israel's kings trusted only in the Lord? How many of them rejoiced in the Lord's strength and not in their own? Who of Israel's kings actually put their enemies to flight? What kings of Israel had been made a blessing forever? Of course, David comes to mind. He is one that, to the greatest extent, did put Israel's enemies to flight and did rejoice in the Lord. But David himself could have only admitted that the long life granted and length of days forever and ever spoken of in verse 4 was only by way of a covenant promise to one of his descendants. That one from his line would be on the throne forever. That's the only way David could have thought of himself as living on, so to speak, forever and ever. And as I understand things, until for quite some time, until 1100 AD, the Jewish people themselves interpreted Psalm 21 as being about the Messiah King. They translated verse 1 as King Messiah. O Lord, in your strength, the King Messiah rejoices. They understood that this could only be about the Messiah. And it wasn't until 1100 AD that a prominent rabbi suggested that they drop that translation because it was giving away too much to the Christians who interpreted Psalm 21 appropriately as being fulfilled in Christ. The royal song of triumph can only be sung in full when we consider it as a psalm of Jesus' victory. The psalm moves from Christ's joy, Christ our King's joy in verse 1, to our own joy in verse 13. When God saved Christ, James Johnston writes, he saved us. Our lives are bound up in his. His victory is our victory. And the king's joy becomes our joy. And the rest of the psalm fills that out. So let's consider this psalm, first of all, by considering the king's joy in the Lord's strength. The king's joy in the Lord's strength found in verse 1. The king teaches his people to glorify God in his strength and salvation as he himself humbly glorifies the Lord for the victory he has achieved. Verse 1 reads, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. All the glory belongs to God. We've talked about this idea, this concept of Christ-like humility over the last couple Sundays, in fact, as we've talked about the desirable characteristic for our church that we would all share in this type of humility. To be able to shine as lights in this world requires us to have a Christ-like humility. Brothers and sisters, how easy would it have been for the king, in King David's case, or King Jesus, to beat his chest and claim all the credit for victory. But in fact, the people see and know that the king is acknowledging the source of his salvation is God and God's strength alone. I think for a moment 
uh, this morning as I was making my way in. I thought of John chapter 11. Imagine if you had the power to raise people from the dead. Imagine if you had the power to call Lazarus to life and how easy it would have been to beat your chest and say, look at what I can do, the victory I can achieve. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 11? Deeply moved, we read in verse 38, he comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Does that sound a little bit like you have not withheld the requests of his lips? You always hear my request, Father. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus, never taking for himself glory of his own, giving all glory to the Father and praying even in a way that would honor and give glory to God as the one who had sent him. Jesus exemplifies this humble uh, humble exaltation in the strength of God. And then secondly, consider with me the gifts that are bestowed on the king in Psalm chapter 21. Looking carefully at the text, we can see in verse 2 and then beginning in verse 3 that what the king requested, the king received. Remember John 11? I know that you always hear me. You're always listening and always answering. And what he requested, the, the, the Lord gave him gifts to his anointed one. And those gifts were several. If you kind of look at your Bibles in verses 3 through 6, you will see that God gave the king his presence. God gave the king rich blessings and, in fact, made him to be a blessing, the Bible says. God gave the king great glory, verse 5. And God gave the king life forever. We see that in verse 4. So let me just share a word on each of these gifts bestowed on the king. First of all, of the Lord's gift of his presence. I wonder, would the gift of God's presence seem like a gift to you? Or to put it differently and rather directly, do you love the gifts of God more than you love God himself? If you are not excited about being in God's presence... I'm afraid you won't be too thrilled with heaven. God himself is the gift, his presence. As Moses begged him in the book of Exodus, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to leave this place. Do you love God for what he gives you and what he does for you and all that he can provide for you? Or do you love God? A good word to our children and us as children these days, do we love our fathers for all that they can buy or give to us or do for us? Or do we love our dads? God gave the king his presence, but God also gave the king rich blessings and made him to be a blessing. The footnote on the English standard version in verse six, it reads originally here, for you make him most blessed forever. 
But the footnote in my English Standard Bible says, or you make him a source of blessing forever. And either of those readings would be appropriate. In other words, it's possible that this text is saying you make him to be a blessing for others. He is a source of blessing. And that's, of course, exactly what Christ is. He is a wellspring of blessing for the nations. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that in his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. So there's God's presence, the gift of God's blessing, and then there's the gift of glory. Charles Spurgeon, writing on verse 5, says that the glory must be commensurate with his shame, that he receive a glory commensurate with his suffering, that he has earned a glory equal to the suffering he experienced. Listen, it's not possible for us to honor Jesus too much. What God delights to do in giving glory through his salvation, we must delight to do as well. This idea of suffering and then glory is the parabola. Some of you math people know what I'm talking about. The parabola of Philippians 2, 5 through 11 that we've been speaking about. That God in Christ, the, the eternal second person of the Trinity, humbled himself and suffered and bled and died on the cross. He suffered. And the Bible says, therefore, because he was obedient to the point of death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that Jesus received glory and honor commensurate with the suffering he has experienced, the suffering of even death on a cross. That, to me, sounds like a glory through salvation. Does it not in verse 5? And then it begs the question, if this is a psalm of victory of Christ, then does it not make sense that Psalm 22 is a psalm of the cross? A little preview into next week's message. That the great glory of the king being bestowed comes through his suffering on the cross and that he would be exalted and glorified through the salvation that God provides. And then there's life. Life forever and ever. We see that in verse 4. Once again, while it is likely that David understood this eternal life by virtue of the covenant promise that was made to him in 2 Samuel 7, that one from his descendant, one of his descendants would be on the throne forever and ever. The only way to fully comprehend verse 4 is the king who lives forever and ever. Romans chapter 6 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ is king forever and ever. He asked for life, and it was granted to him for eternity. He rules and he reigns. And here in verse 4, we have a clear picture of the vindication of Jesus by God the Father in the resurrection. He asked for life, and you gave it to him. He was, as Paul says, descended from David according to the flesh in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. But he was, as Romans puts it, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Lord in his strength 
granted eternal and glorious victory to the anointed Messiah. But then notice thirdly, this psalm records for us the victories anticipated for the king. Victories anticipated. Not only is the presence, blessing, glory, and life of the king a fixed and firm reality that's worthy of joy and exaltation, but the immovable king will accomplish the full and final destruction of evil and those who reject the Lord and his ways. Note first the discovery of the king's enemies. We see this in verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Again, what earthly king could this have ever been said of, that his right hand would find out all of his enemies? Every one of them? Every hater out there found, discovered? Only Jesus will lay bare every sinner, scoffer, and evildoer that does not repent and believe in him for salvation. And that's good news, right? It's good news to know, first of all, because we are sinners worthy of being found out, worthy of being destroyed by God for our rebellion and sinfulness. But Jesus Christ took the penalty we deserve, and he offers salvation to all who will put their trust in him. But it's also good news because the wickedness and the darkness of this world will one day be no more. Every evil thought, every evil deed that is done will be brought to light. Those who believe that in this life they have gotten away with something will come to find out that the powerful hand of King Jesus turns over every stone and he shines light in every dark corner. And that is, of course, thankfully, what has happened in the Southern Baptist Convention. King Jesus has shown a light on enemies of his who perpetrated evil and sexual abuse and those who have tried to cover over sin. But friends, there is no hiding from the King of kings and Lord of lords. His hand will find out all of his enemies in this life or in the life to come. Every knee will bow. Paul says. But then notice, secondly, not only will King Jesus discover all of his enemies, he will make them, as verse 9 says, as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. Charles Spurgeon warns the reader of this psalm, never tolerate slight thoughts of hell or you will soon have low thoughts of sin. Never tolerate slight thoughts of hell, or you will soon have low thoughts of sin. The hell of sinners must be fearful beyond all conception, or such language as the present verse would never be used. Who would want the Son of God to be his enemy when such an overthrow awaits the foes of King Jesus? Matthew Henry also writes sobering remarks on verse 9. 
He says, not only will enemies of Jesus be cast into a furnace of fire, and for that you can read Matthew 13, 42, but he will make them themselves as a fiery oven or furnace. Did you see that? You will make them as a blazing oven. They themselves will be the blazing oven, if you will. They will be their own tormentors. He continues, the reflections and terrors of their own consciences will be their hell. Those that might have had Christ to rule and to save them, but rejected him. They fought against him. They are the ones of Psalm chapter 2 that railed against the, the Lord's anointed one. And the psalmist says, be fearful. Be nervous about that position. And they did that. Even the remembrance of the fact that they rejected him will be enough to make them to eternity, a fiery oven to themselves. Christ will discover his enemies. Not only will he make them a blazing oven as appearance, he will also, we read in verse 10, destroy evildoers completely from the earth. Verse 10, you will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. There is a sort of certainty and finality to the punishment of wicked on this earth. One of the Psalms, remember the gatekeeper, Psalm 1, at the beginning, set that tone already. Are you reminded of Psalm 1, verse 6? The Lord watches over, Psalm 1, 6, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friends, insofar as you have eyes of faith to believe that God has granted Jesus victory, In his death, burial, and resurrection, you must be equally certain that he will place every enemy under his feet, knowing, of course, that the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. There is coming a day when forever we will either live with King Jesus, enjoying the presence of God, or we will live eternally under his wrath and consumed by fire. All of this, both victory and his destruction of evil, will be to the praise and the glory of God for his strength and salvation. So we note, lastly, the people's joy in the Lord's strength. Jesus' joy becomes our joy as we rejoice in the power and strength and glory of God to save And it is appropriate then to burst forth into song because of it. As this verse says, Psalm 21, 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Amen. As we close today's message on Psalm 21, I want to share just a couple of brief points of application. First, From Psalm 21, we distill a lesson on thanksgiving. We distill a lesson on thanksgiving. James Montgomery Boyce writes, There is something to be learned by the mere existence of this psalm about the importance of us giving thanks. Generally, we do not find it particularly hard to pray when we are in trouble. Even unbelievers pray. In times of sickness, danger, financial loss, or other hardships. God, what am I going to do? They will pray. 
We do the same, though we have a greater knowledge of who God is and what he has promised to do for us, his children. It is, however, much harder to pray after God intervenes to help, rescue, or save us, as he so often does. And the fact that Psalm 20 and 21 were linked together shows us that the Jews of this far-off day realize the importance and the necessity of being thankful always. That's a good word. Jesus, of course, recognized the need for thankfulness as well and how easily it, it, how easily it comes to us to neglect thanking God after he intervenes. Think with me of Jesus healing the ten lepers. And as you will recall, though they were all healed and no longer diseased, it was only one that came back to thank Jesus, the Samaritan. And Jesus asked the one standing around, he said, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? And I wonder, Leonardtown Baptist Church, are we more like the nine than the one? This story, I think, is an indicator that the odds are against us. Nine to one. I'm not saying that's an exact ratio of thankfulness to unthankfulness that you can take to the bank. The point is well taken. We are not often thankful people. The elders have been discussing ways that we can grow in our own prayer lives and in our teaching about prayer to the church. We want to teach the church to be a thankful church. We want to acknowledge what God has done in answer to prayers and in praise of who he is. Again, on this Father's Day, is it not appropriate to remember how our Lord taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. To praise and glorify God for who he is, to thank him for the provision of daily bread, is ingrained in our prayerfulness. Brother David, if you wouldn't mind, thank you. So we are taught to be thankful in our prayers. But hear me, if God never answered a single one of our petitions to him, another one, we would still have an eternity that we could fill with thankful praise for all he's already done for us. Amen? From Psalm 21... We can discover two reasons to worship the Lord's, excuse me, the strength of the Lord and the salvation of the Lord's anointed. There's two right there that we could speak of and expound on theme and variation for all of eternity. The strength and power of God and the salvation of the Lord's anointed one who is our head, King Jesus. This psalm itself gives us these reasons. The strength of the Lord should cause us, the Bible says, to rejoice. God is powerful. God is mighty. He created this world out of the word of his power. His strength is unmatched and awesome. So we, like Jesus, can rejoice in the strength of God. I sing the mighty power of God who made the mountains rise spread the flowing seas abroad and filled the lofty skies. We can sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day 
And the moon shines full at his command. What power is that? And all the stars obey. That's power. But then secondly, it's not just the absolute power of creation. It's God's saving power. In this psalm, it's about his power to save his anointed king. He is the king of Psalm 2, the one of whom God said, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he instructed his anointed one, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Well, guess what? Jesus did ask. Jesus prayed and the Father answered. He gave him the nations as an inheritance. God has made Jesus a blessing to all nations, including our nation. We are here today because Jesus is a blessing to all nations. So we should worship the God of strength who did not withhold the requests of the lips of his son, Jesus, the anointed one. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit until the work on earth is done. So brothers and sisters, we have a lot for which we can be thankful. So we'll read the Psalms, we'll study the Psalms, and find in them reasons to praise the Lord and exalt the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful today for the salvation you have wrought for us in Jesus. You sought us, you bought us with his redeeming blood. Father, we're thankful for your love, the great love with which you have loved us. Father, we are thankful for our adoption. We're thankful that as the writer of Hebrews interprets the next psalm, Psalm 22, that Jesus calls us his brothers. That we are co-heirs with Christ. And Father, as Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Father, we inherit the earth. Everything is mine in Christ. Everything is ours in him. Because he was victorious, we will be victorious. We will live in his life. We will rejoice in his joy. Father, thank you for answering King Jesus when he called to you in his distress, when he cried to you and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Father, when you raised him victoriously from the dead to be granted the gift of life forever, such that King Jesus reigns and rules on his throne now and as our mediator continually pleads his blood for us as Christians, intercedes on our behalf when we sin and fail, and the Spirit utters and groans in words that are beyond our comprehension because of all that Jesus accomplished for us. Great is the King's glory through your salvation. Father, we glorify the strength you displayed, the wisdom you displayed, 
Father, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to us who are being saved, it's your wisdom. We praise you for your salvation. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to rejoice and to glorify you and to hear your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.